This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing, and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes, and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, uh, the Scotsman's political podcast. With us this week is our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Good morning. Uh, all the better for speaking to you, uh, basking in the post-Eurovision glow. <laughs> Fantastic. Sadly, um, Gina is not with us this week. She's not feeling particularly well this morning. Um, although through the miracles of editing and audio audio time travel. She will appear in our interview later on uh, with Pam Duncan Glancy, uh, the new MSP for Glasgow South. Um, She's the new Labour MSP for Glasgow South, um, sorry, Glasgow region. Um, And she's the first permanent wheelchair user in Holyrood. So that's that's later on. Um, But Alex, you're here to chat about how things are going. It's a big week in Westminster because we have um, the joys of uh, Mr. Brexit, Dominic Cummings himself, appearing at, I think it's a joint meeting, isn't it, of the Health and Technology Committee committees in the Commons on Wednesday to talk all things COVID. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dominic Cummings is just a messy bee who loves drama. Um, <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, as I'm sure you've seen, uh, he has tweeted uh, that herd community was the plan, the, there were huge mistakes in government. He's been going after Jenny Harris. Uh, he has been just saying so many damning things that you just think would have been so good to say at the time. Like, if I had concerns about stuff that was going to affect whether people lived or died, I probably would just say it at the time rather than just do it for the likes and retweets. Though that is obviously is worth something. Uh, I find it utterly fascinating that he's just become this extremely online person doing long Twitter threads like a Financial Times journalist. Uh, I, I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Uh, though it does, it does raise a question, I suppose. Is he, is he getting it all out now? You know, is he using up all the good stuff? Uh, is he doing it so that, you know, MPs have got an idea of what to ask him because famously he thinks MPs and journalists are idiots, so he wants to, you know, have spoon-feed them the questions to ask him? Um, or will he have, you know, even bigger stuff to drop on the day? It's uh, it's very it's very exciting. I am very excited. 
I mean, he is he is the world's worst super superhero, isn't he? He's he's Captain Hindsight um, in in everything that he talks about at the minute. In the sense of it's you know it was terrible that we did this thing that I was inherently and very intrinsically involved in at the time and said nothing presumably about in public. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, um, Salmond inquiry when we had the build up to the appearances of both Alex Salmond and, and Nicholas Sturgeon. And it was like, well, what bombshell are they going to drop on the day? And then it was both pretty anticlimactic, if a bit, you know, drama, a good political drama, but nothing particularly evidential. Do you think we're in for the same from, from Dom? Well, I just, my, my main suspicion is that it will be quite damning. Um, he will you know, be very condescending to everyone and criticise the government. He's already said that Boris Johnson is not his fault, but he made huge mistakes. He's gone after Matt Hancock as well um, and is turning his attention to other people, uh, you know, unnamed civil servants who perhaps made mistakes in Whitehall. Um, but will any of it really make a difference? I mean, you know, Boris Johnson's premiership has overseen you know, a death toll nearly 130,000 people. Uh, three lockdowns by promising there wouldn't be a lockdown. They said there wouldn't be, uh, you know, Christmas was going to be fine. Then Christmas wasn't going to be fine. We were going to have the moonshot. Um, you know, then there's the whole sleeve scandals, uh, you know, constantly. Um, I, I, I won't, there's no point listing them. I can just say sleeves, and that's an all-encompassing term now. That's just generally accepted about um, the, Conserv- the UK Conservative Party, I should say. Um, and, like, you know, they are absolutely soaring in the UK-wide polls. So... Will it matter? My, my, my counterpoint would be: Does anything really matter? Uh, <laughs> we've got we've reached that stage of lockdown, have we? <laughs> welcome, to the, welcome to the Nihilist Podcast. Um, my name is irrelevant, and so are you. <laughs> so I think there's, there's there's talk, isn't there? That I mean, coming Cummings supposedly might have audio recordings. I think that's the big thing that. Some people are saying, you know, that Boris Johnson might have said many inappropriate things similar to the to the widely reported alleged comment a few weeks ago. I mean, as you say, you know, how much of how much of an impact is this stuff really going to have when we're at the tail end of this crisis and seemingly there's some light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, also, I mean, I mean, you think about the herd immunity stuff mm. that's now been denied by Pretty Patel, Liz Truss denied it this morning. Um, it was denied by Jenny Harries uh, and the UK government itself, you know, through their uh, through their people. So I, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to say that you know if they get caught saying you know if there's proof they lied, you think okay, well that's pretty that's pretty significant. That's really bad. Um, but you know, like the ministerial code, they mark their own homework. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pretty Patel was found to have breached it um, for the second time after her um, you know jolly to Israel. Um, so I, I really find, I really struggle to, to, you know, we in Westminster might go, Oh, this is really bad, but I'm not sure necessarily where, where anything can stick. Cause nothing he says so far, you know, the Cummings has been tweeting now for, for a while. Uh, and, and this stuff was also claimed at the time, right? Like not, it, it's not necessarily new, uh, what he's been saying. It's just kind of, you know, confirmation of what had been suggested before. Uh, and that hasn't seemed to damage the, the government. So I, I'm, I'm very excited for it, but I, you know, he's really, he's got to bring out the big guns. I mean, recordings would make a huge difference if he, if you know, if he does indeed have a recording of the prime minister saying, you know, part, you know, he'd rather have, uh, you know, the bodies pile high. Uh, given the categorical denial from Downing Street, that is absolutely extraordinary, and you know, 
the prime minister would have to, you know, we probably wouldn't resign, but he would he could get suspended from the house for denying it. Um, so it's a, it's it's exciting, but you know, I feel like it's one of those things where you get quite up, quite up about it, and actually, mm-hmm. it it might not go anywhere. Do you think that um... problem season essentially? Yeah, there was an interesting comment piece. I can't remember. I think it was Charlotte Ivers at, at the Times who wrote it. Who's one of the political correspondents at Times Radio? Who who basically described Boris Johnson's current scenario as a, similar to Jeremy Corbyn pre the Scripple poisonings, in the sense that there were lots of criticism aimed at Jeremy Corbyn, but his popularity seemed to kind of you know have most of the allegations and most of the negative stuff slide off, which is what we're seeing with Boris Johnson. You know, he's had so many controversies, but in the public eye, you know, nothing's really stuck. And I think what what Charlotte was saying was that when the Scripple poisonings happened and, you know, Corbyn's response was let's send some of the poison to Russia to see if they can check if it's theirs, you know, that that was one of the first things that really cut through to the public and people started seeing... Uh, or viewing Corbyn in the in the in the view, picture of all of the things that they've been told were wrong about him, clearly, and this was coming up at the doorstep with with Boris. Do you think this is a potential moment where, if he is proven to lie rather than just more allegations, and he is is proved to say some of these things, that it will cut through to the public in the same way, maybe th- some of the stuff with with Corbyn did. I would say if he said that comment that would be utterly damning and I think there would be a huge cut through because it is so grotesque. And you you can kind of, you can see the point that he's making. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the worst thing is with his records, you know, you can absolutely believe him saying it. You know, he has recited uh, poetry that he shouldn't have done in temples. Uh, we all know what he said about uh, Nazanin uh, Ratcliffe uh, in the Commons, uh, which definitely didn't help uh, mm-hmm. with her sentence. Uh, and then you can just look at any of his columns, uh, the Telegraph, uh, stuff about letterboxes, uh, or Obama's ancestral dislike of, the, of Britain. He's not a man known for, um, you know, saying things that <laughs> are always acceptable and good. So in that sense, you know, could it be bad? Is it possible? Yes. But I think that would be enough because it's you know, that's people's lives. People are already angry about, about the death toll, but actually knowing that the prime minister made a joke about it uh, I think would be extremely significant. And also he lied about it. I mean, you know, you can't, there's no way of pretending and going, oh, you know, you're talking down, when you make criticism of the vaccine task force, you're talking down Britain rather than, you know, offering constructive criticism to try and make things better. Uh, that's just, he's been caught on a lie. Um, which obviously for him, given his uh, record at, you know, the Times and when he was had sat from the front bench, would be a huge shock. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's 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 move on slightly, um, and we're going to talk about um, a tweet. Now, we have differing views on this, Alex, so I'll, I'll let you go first. But there was a, a a controversial tweet from Rhiannon Spear, who I believe is the convener of the Education Committee in Glasgow City Council. She's an SNP councillor. She's quite a high profile SNP councillor. She's the women's convener or women's officer within the SNP as well, and she tweeted. Um, after the UK received null point um, at Eurovision, that it's okay, Europe, we hate the United Kingdom too. Um, that was obviously picked up by all of the weekend papers on on Sunday. Um, what's your view on it, Alex? Do you, do you think it's as controversial and as bad and as terrible as people make out? 
I just think it's incredibly stupid and unprofessional. I mean, I, you know, I think it's probably more of a WhatsApp to the group. It, it's, it goes in the group chat. It does not go on Twitter. You know, it's one of those you type out, you think, and then you message a friend and go, can I tweet this? And they go, absolutely not. Uh, and then you get rid because it, it just, you know, it fits the idea of uh, a negative, nasty nationalism that so many on the right like to make sweeping generalizations about uh, towards the SNP and the independence movement. Uh, I understand it's a joke and, you know, who I, I, I just think it, it invites trouble. Uh, it had to be, I think it's been deleted now. Um, it's, it's so unnecessary. It's an own goal. It's, it, it's, it's a gift and press releases for everyone else. Um, though, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not one of the bigger names doing it. Um, it's funny, sure. Uh, but it's just, uh, it's, it's unprofessional and I think it hurts the, uh, reputation, uh, of the SNP. See, I I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, didn't we? But, um, I just think it's just, we're in need of a humor filter sometimes in Scottish politics. There's a lot of ludicrous overreaction to tweets that frankly in the context that they are sent aren't even remotely offensive or you know controversial and i i think i think you have to view yeah i think i've I've experienced myself actually so uh... (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i think i think i think you have to i i I can understand i think i don't think you're wrong at all actually when it comes to you know, of course, that sort of tweet invites trouble. It's a bit stupid to tweet it, but for for the love of God, I mean, I think it was sent at quarter to midnight on Saturday night when the UK, you know, in the middle of Eurovision, where there was a dancing middle finger on stage from Germany, you know, and <laughs> a gender fluid uh, Italian rock band had won the thing. I think you have to look at these yeah. things in the context they're sent. I mean, yes, it's not particularly clever, but it's a joke. She clearly doesn't mean it as a we hate the UK in a visceral way that the word is intended maybe on a Tuesday morning. But it's it's. I just think it's depressing for me that the first reaction from Scottish politics is to look at that and go, that's a tweet that we're going to you know, plaster on the front pages of, of the papers on, on, on Sunday and into Monday. Personally, I just, I think time for people to gain a bit of a sense of humor and sure, I mean, calm, just calm down. <laughs> sure. I mean, it is, it is a story. Obviously the main line, uh, involved the Italian winners. Um, mm. but I, I just thought it was a very silly. I, I know that it, it, you know, everyone's getting quite angry about it. Um, but it's, you, that, you, what you, this is Scottish politics. It's it's deeply divisive. You know, you you tweet a story, or I tweet, or I tweet a story about you know where we speak to, speak to someone on either side, um, <laughs> and I get called every bad word uh, by both sides. Uh, there is no room for nuance uh, on Twitter, and there's certainly no sense of humour. Um, it was re- it was silly. I, I think it's funny. Um, you know, who doesn't hate the UK, especially with the weather at the moment? Uh, but I would say, given your role, you just know not to tweet that. Yeah, I think that I think that's a fair. I think it was James Forsyth this morning, or maybe Fraser Nelson, who was tweeting that it's a problem due to the SNP's civic nationalism. I'm thinking, well, if that's a problem for the SNP's civic nationalism, you should have a look at what 
um, the approach from from the UK Conservatives is to to unionism and and, and devolution because it's yes, fair enough. It's a stupid thing to tweet, but you know, gave me a giggle when I saw it personally. You know, from the from the viewpoint of a you know pro pro independence, that's all it means. You know, of course she hates the UK from that point of view. She wants to be independent. It's logical. I, I also um, thing is, you can want to be independent and think it would be better for Scotland. Um, you know, more control uh, over over investment and your rules and laws and borders because obviously that's very similar. Uh, and not hate the UK. It's not I hate the UK. It's I want Scotland to be better and independent because I think that's where the control should be uh, and that's what I identify. The argument is that actually they just hate the UK and they hate Westminster and they yeah. hate London, uh, which is, you know, and her tweet just fits that narrative which people try to construct so perfectly. So it was uh, it was just a bit silly, really. You're absolutely right. It fits the um, the, the Scottish Conservative press, press office uh wish list of stupid things to tweet on a Saturday night. Um, but also I would I would suggest tweeting after eleven, maybe half eleven. There's a cutoff point. I think there's a cutoff point for when good tweets are going to be happening. Um it, it, you know I would say three drinks or after eleven PM. Uh, Some of the best jokes come after three drink, drinks though, Alex. That's the problem. Sure, but that's fine. It's, it's you know, it's the fine line, it's the madness of the creator, <laughs> the artiste, um, if you will. You know, either you're doing a fantastic painting of some flowers, you're chopping an ear off. Uh, there is no in between. Absolutely. Well, um, if anyone listening has any strong opinions on on the tweet from Rianne Spib, do let us know. You can uh, drop us a line on Twitter. Would you know? Um, I'm at I'm at Connor underscore Matchit, and Alex is at Alex of Brown. Um, next up, we're going to hear uh, a fantastic interview from uh, one of the newest MSPs in Holyrood, which is Pam Duncan Clancy. She's the new Labour MSP for the Glasgow region. So, hello and welcome to the steamy Labour MSP for the Glasgow region, uh, Pam Duncan Classy. Uh, Pam, thank you very much for ha- coming on the podcast this week. As always, Gina is here with us as well. Um, for listeners of the steamy who might not know, Pam's in one of the new Labour intake uh, in the 2021 Holyrood, uh, from the 2021 Holyrood election. So, first of all, congratulations. What's the first couple of weeks been like in the job? Uh, thank you very much and uh, hello and, and thanks for having me on. Um, it has been probably one of the most incredible experiences I've I've had, um, but I've just described it in a meeting I'm just out of as probably the steepest, fastest and slightly bumpiest um, learning curve I've been on in a long time. But the good news is there are a lot of people um, willing to help me navigate that learning curve and, uh, curve and get around the bumps. So all going well so far. You can't wipe the smile off your face, Pam. <laughs> like since election day, you've just looked so delighted about um, about making it into Holyrood. So what what are these bumps that you're talking about? What's proved the most kind of tricky thing to get your head around since you got there? Um, for me, just process. Um, to be honest, so I guess bumps is there hasn't there haven't been problems per se. It's just been things I've had to I've had to get my head around, um, and I've done a lot of learning. Um, and I'm, I'm a lot of absorbing, so I'm a bit of a sponge right now when it comes to um, how to how to get to grips with things in Parliament, wh- what I should be doing, how I should be doing it, um, wh- whether whether or not we're allowed to be in or out of the chamber at certain moments. Um, can you have water, coffee, etc.? All of these kind of things that uh, the new person on the block has to get to grips with pretty quickly. Um, but otherwise, uh, it has um, it's been 
outstanding and the parliament staff have been incredible and I think I've said this previously but the way that they have made everything so easy for someone um, particularly um, for the first permanent wheelchair user to be to be in the in the building on a, a kind of more regular basis than, than before um, it has been a real credit to them um, and also I have to say credit to, to my party the Labour Party because if it hadn't been um, for the support that they've given me over the years, uh, there's no doubt about it. I don't think um, I would have got there. So, yeah, I've had a lot of support and I can't wipe the smile off my face because I genuinely am um, partly in disbelief, but also um, very proud um, to have had the, the trust of the people of Glasgow. So I was going to ask Pam, I mean, it's uh, it's it's a it's a maze, Holyrood. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've been in Holyrood only a handful of times, started this job in the middle of COVID. So you've probably been in there more than me already in the last two weeks. Um, I get lost all the time. Has Have you found any issues with, with the building or is the building all fine? Is it, you know, is it built for to, to help you out as, as a wheelchair user as best as possible? It's actually very good. It's a, it is a very accessible space. Um, there's, a, there's a funny story, which I'll come back to in a second, about, about navigating it. Um, but it is a very accessible space for someone, particularly for someone who's in a wheelchair. I think for someone who has mobility issues, the the scale of it would be would be an issue because there is a lot of walking, I guess, a lot of distance to be travelled. Um, my power chair will do it. Um, although I have to say, the first day I was in last week, um, when we were getting our orientation, um, I literally run the battery out. So as I was going back up the Royal Mile, um, my chair was at the back of me giving me a shove um, because the battery had run out of my wheelchair. So I've. Uh, I've now got a, a wheelchair battery charger in the office um, for when I start to notice that I'm running it out. Um, and I think, uh, I think we should all get, I don't know, Fitbit so that everyone who's doing <laughs> um, obviously it won't help me, but um, everyone who's doing that amount of, uh, covering that amount of ground in any day is, is doing a lot of steps. But um, navigating as for someone in a wheelchair in, in the parliament is very slightly different routes at times to, to others. So like the famous sort of staircase from the garden lobby up to the chamber. So there's a lift, um, I'm calling it the Donald Dewar lift because there's a picture, uh, the painting of him um, at the side of it from the chamber. Um, so that's obviously there's slightly um, different routes there, but the parliament were really good in walking us around um, and not letting us get lost. However, um, at, <laughs> within about maybe three hours of, um, of them saying, are you okay, do you know how to get round? And I'm saying, yeah, I think I know where I'm going. Um, I went in the wrong lift, pressed the wrong button and found myself trying to enter the First Minister's office um, <laughs> at the point at which um, uh, the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister were, were coming into the lift. So that was that was a funny moment. And uh, um, Nicola Sturgeon and I had, had a wee laugh about, about me trying to get in there pretty quick. Um, I said I'd, I'd said I'd give it a couple of weeks before I, before I get that. <laughs> Always good to be ambitious, Pam, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say, I was saying, opportunities for snooping, you know, if, you, if you'd have timed it right. <laughs> I think uh, the look on all of our faces, I was just surprised to have uh, be faced with um, with the Deputy First Minister and the First Minister when the lift opened, as I think they were, to see me coming out of it. Um, so, yeah. But other than that, I've found my way around um, and it's all good. So you are you are the, um, the first wheelchair user MSP. In the Parliament, yeah. how big a deal is that, Pam? I mean, can you can you tell our listeners, you know, what what the impact that actually has um, for disabled people in Scotland? I think the 
the impact was kind of shown um, possibly on slightly, maybe the day before I was elected, actually, which is um, on the Friday and the experience I had at the count in Glasgow. Um, and I should say up front that the council have since been excellent and the chief executive herself apologised um, on, on the day. Um, and they, they very, very quickly turned things around so that the experience on the Saturday at the count was much, much better. In fact, flawless. Um, and so what that shows to me um, is that there's not many, a lot of disabled people face stuff like that on a daily basis. Like that is not the first time. It will not be the last time um, that, that I've gone into a building and had, had all of the experiences I had that day. So the, the attitudinal stuff, the stigma stuff. Um, the, the inability to, to navigate a, a, a space um, or to help a disabled person know the route around it. Um, all of those things happen on a daily basis. But what doesn't happen on a daily basis for the majority of disabled people in Scotland is that you don't find yourself in the room with the chief executive of the organisation who's just done it and half of the country's press. And because of that, um, now the chief executive, she was excellent. I'm sure she would have um, sorted it out. But the combination identified, I think, the importance of having disabled people in the room where decisions happen, because not only was, um, were they able to say what went wrong and let's fix it immediately, and they did so, but they were they were able to do that with drawing on the lived experience that I had there and then. And I'm acutely aware that thousands and thousands upon thousands of disabled people in our country face those kind of things every day and don't end up in that privileged position. So having us in the room and the way that they were able to just identify the issue, hear, hear directly what it was and address it overnight is exactly why it's so important for us to have disabled people in Parliament. And I don't think we can underestimate the scale of that. Um, and I, I, I'm very, very proud to, to, to be the, the first wheelchair user and uh, permanent wheelchair user in the, in the Scottish Parliament. But I, I'm there because of the work of um, trade union movements, the Labour Party, the disability movement, um, and actually the people of Glasgow, because not only did they put their trust in someone who they may they may have wondered, you know, there'll be questions about people will be thinking, how will you manage? What will, what will it be like? But for, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm, and I'm incredibly grateful for it, they put their trust in me. And I, I really do get there and find myself in this room with a lot of people um, at my back who, who I will not waste a second um, advocating for in Parliament. There was that extremely moving video um, on, on Twitter, I think the day of or the day after you were elected. I mean, uh, for those who didn't watch it, it was you know a fellow, mm -hmm. uh, I think a young girl, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Who who was reacting to your bit, you being sworn in? What what sort of impact do you think this is going to have on on young girls, young young disabled users, that seeing someone like yourself in a position of influence and of you know real public office? I I didn't really have that growing up, so I'm 39. I kind of still say I'm young, but I guess I'm creeping uh, creeping over that. Um, but um, I'm 39 and, and I don't think that's a, um, that's still a relatively recent period for me to be able to say, do you know what, when I was young, you know, maybe 30 years ago or, or 25 years ago, I didn't see disabled people or permanent wheelchair users um, or wheelchair users in the high street, never mind in, in Parliament. And if I had been able to see someone who looked like me in Parliament, I think it could have changed things. Um, for for my my outlook and it could and it will ultimately I hope change things for a lot of other disabled people um, in Scotland and elsewhere and if my inbox is anything to go by um, since uh, I've been since I've been in in position um, it has already had had an impact and and I'm I'm absolutely honoured 
um, and some of the, the messages of support that I've had from disabled people, from people who are family members of disabled people, um, to say how important this has been for them um, has been incredibly moving. Um, and that the video um, that uh, Katie uh, is the the young girl in the video. She um, that video I think um, was so so powerful because it shows exactly the importance I think of of what what people in Glasgow have done um, by by electing by electing me. Um, but it also symbolises a lot of the messages that I've been having of support through social media and through um, through my, my inbox. Pam. Can you tell our listeners a wee bit about your own political journey then? You know, how do you, how have you ended up here as an MSP? You know, what's been your background in terms of um, fighting for, for disability rights and, and so on? And also just what it was at first maybe kind of inspired you to get involved in politics? Yeah, so there's there's a, a, a couple of things. Um, I'd, it's, it's not an accident that, that the Labour Party are involved here. Um, I have to say, so in my formative years, um, so when I was um, getting kind of into the later stages of high school and then into into further education, higher education, we had a Labour government. So we had a, we had a government that did things that actually changed the lives of disabled people. And in fact, they called um, their, their strategy for disabled people improving the life chances of disabled people and um, that the then uh, Minister for Disabled People, Anne Maguire, uh, led. And some of the work that that government did was so important. And if they hadn't done that, so if they hadn't done things like um, enact part four of the Disability Discrimination Act to support people, disabled people in education. If they hadn't brought in things like tax credits to support disabled people into work and offer benefits, um, if they hadn't done things um, like have a, a minimum wage and, and, and add things in um, to employment rights, uh, then we wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't have been such a, it's not been an easy path, but that path would have been a lot harder for me. So that that kind of is why I, I found myself a home in the labour movement, the broader labour movement, with our trade unions as well, and as well as the party. But my, my kind of politics, um, with a small p, goes back to, um, there's a couple of instances that, that I can think of. One of them um, is both involve my mum. And one of them is about getting um, a, a job um, and my mum going and being offered the job and me being told it wasn't available. And then my mum going in and saying, well, you're now starting this job and brought me in and they said, this, Pam's going to do this job because she's perfectly able to do it. And that, to me, showed that when you get the opportunity as a disabled person, you can prove that actually prejudice or oppression or people's people's fears um, and opinions about what you can and can't do can be overcome. So that again, it's the importance of being in the room to to show to show that. And unfortunately, as disabled people, we've got to and um, we have to work a bit a bit harder to prove ourselves. Um, is that fair? Probably not. Is it the case? Yes. Um, because because we face that um, those barriers, so you do need to kind of say, um, actually, I can do this. Um, and one of the biggest criticisms I've had of the the welfare system um, in in recent years is that it kind of puts disabled people in a bit of a crisis of identity. Because on one hand, you have to you have to go to an employer and say, don't worry about me being a disabled person. I'm perfectly able to do this job, and kind of play down. What, what your experience is or what your needs are as a disabled person. And on the other hand, you've got the benefit system to say, I do need some support to meet the extra cost of being a disabled person and this is how disabled I am. So you're playing two roles. Um, and that's that's really, really uh, difficult. So that that moment, um, that that kind of single act or that gutsy move, I think, of my mum's taught me that not only was there going to be a bit of discrimination, um, a bit is an understatement, um, but that it was going to be a difficult fight, but we would have to, 
always try and prove ourselves. Um, and then uh, when I was at school, uh, I did modern studies and higher. I crashed, I crashed it because I didn't do it in standard grade, but I ended up staying on at school for a year longer than I thought because the university, um, the local authority where the university was, um, hadn't really sorted out, and the local authority where I lived hadn't sort, sorted out responsibility for my care. So I had to defer entry to university because um, care packages weren't and still are not portable across local authority boundaries. So um, it took two years to sort that. And in my modern studies class, I was asked the question, do you support positive action? Um, presumably because I'm at the time was probably the only person that looked a bit different. So I was asked, what do you think? And at the time I said, uh, oh, well, no, I want to get a job on merit. I want to get a job because I'm good at it and because I'm the right person for it. And I went home and my mum, you know, how, how was your day at school? And I told her what I'd said and my mum said, well, you have a lot to learn. And I said, really? And she said, well, as a disabled woman from a working class background, you're going to face a lot of disadvantage. You take every single advantage you can get. And that's why it's why I'm always um, in support of positive action. It's why I think we do have to take action across our political spectrum to get more disabled people in our everywhere, actually, from our high streets to um, our boardrooms, to parliaments, councils um, and, and all over the place. Um, so those kind of things started to define my politics. And then when I got to university, I got involved in the student union and I could I then saw the the benefit of collective action and solidarity with other people. So that's when I first started to properly politically um, politically identify with disabled people. So I always knew I was a disabled person because we kind of just do. Um, it's obvious, but I had never understood that from a political point of view. And I learned that at university and I learned the power of collective action and working together. And that actually most of the struggles that we face on an individual basis, like every single bit that, that you get as a disabled person, other people have exp experienced the same thing. And so that's when I understood politics from a um, dis disability politics, from a collective action and oppression point of view. And that actually disability rights are about equality and human rights. They're not about a medical intervention. Um, they're about having the rights to practical assistance and support to be able to participate in society and, and, and do what everyone else does. A bit building on from that, Pam, I'm intrigued to know what you think the biggest failings are at the minute, you know, from the current government. You know, the SNP talks a big game when it comes to equalities and it it, it, it it's struggled to live up to that at times. Um, what what are the biggest challenges? How, how are you going to, you know, take on the, the the might of Nicola Sturgeon and, and the SNP in trying to bring these things to life? Um, well, I hope that we can do that um, as, a, as a collective in Parliament and out with for, for people that say we, the rhetoric the rhetoric is good. And actually, there's no doubt about it. What, what the SNP government has said um, over the 14 years they've been in government um, around equality and human rights for disabled people is good. And actually, the first step of getting there is to, is to talk in those terms. So credit where credit's due. But then when you look at the actual outcomes that we've got and that we face, we've got disabled people who um, don't have enough social care to be able to go and see their family or friends or hold down a job or go um, go into when things are open and um, go to go to shops or bars or restaurants. And um, we've got disabled people who are, are relying um, on a lot of unpaid care. So I, I recently did an event with young carers and um, some of whom are doing in excess of 90 hours of care in a week. If you... Like, I mean, that is an incredibly high amount of support to be providing as a young carer to a family member, um, as any carer to a family member. And carer's allowance at the minute is something like £67 a week. Um, and you have to be doing over 35 hours a week care. 
Now that works out, I can't do the maths immediately, but that works out as not an awful lot of money. Um, and it is considered an income. So you so that I mean there's a there's a flaw there. And we've got the powers in Scotland to do something about it. We've got the powers in Scotland to do something about disability assistance, but we've delayed it. Um, we've got the powers in Scotland to, to address poverty. And one of the things I'd like to see the government do in terms of disabled people's poverty is to set poverty targets like they've done um, with child poverty. Now, if they continue on the current trajectory on child poverty, they won't meet them. So I, I, I don't... I, I don't doubt that, that just setting targets is enough. We then need action, but it would be a good start from that point of view, from a disabled person's point of view. Tens of thousands of disabled people in Scotland are still waiting for wheelchair accessible homes. So that means they can't get in and out of their house. If you can't get in and out of your house, or you don't have the social care to get in and out of your bed, then you're unlikely to be in the high street or indeed parliament. So it's all of those structural and systemic inequalities that haven't frankly been touched. Um, we've just tinkered down the edges for the best part of two decades um, and not actually done anything tangible to change to change the lives of disabled people. So you made um, a comment there about the delay of um, disability benefits being brought to the, the, the Parliament, uh, to the Scottish Government, I should say. And now this week we've had in the, the reshuffle of the, mm -hmm. the Cabinet, the Social Security position no longer being a Cabinet Secretary's position, but a junior minister's position. Um, position i mean how, what do what are your views on that is that i mean i personally think it's a backward step i've written about that in, in the scotsman today but i mean what, what do you think about that pam i i completely agree with you we've got an upgrade in our powers we certainly shouldn't be having a downgrade in the importance of it or attention it gets um social security um now and i know this is a cliche term but now more than ever really is something that we need to focus on so you can't on one hand spend um uh, you know, five, six years arguing to have powers devolved to the Scottish Parliament and then, first of all, delay using them. And secondly, um, when you create your new, uh, the first opportunity you get in a new government to take it away from a cabinet secretary post, um, that signalled um, to, to third sector organisations, to people who need social security, um, who, to people who might need it in the future, um, is, is, it's the wrong signal to send. And um, I am deeply worried about what that means for what the focus of the government will be. Um, we've laid three questions this week. Um, I, I tried, as, as you probably know, for an urgent question um, in Parliament yesterday, but we didn't get called. Um, so we've, we've now written them as, as written questions. So hopefully we'll get um, answers to what led to that decision um, because it is, it's extremely, extremely important. And social security um, needs, we need a social security system that's there for people um, who are in precarious work as much as we need it there for people who are not in work. And we also need it for people who need um, extra income just to achieve economic equality. So, for example, it costs more to live as a disabled person. It costs more to be a lone parent. So all of these things, um, you know, they need social security and they need it now fast with the proper attention it deserves. Um, I was going to move on slightly to COVID. Um, you work in comms in public health or at least did prior to the election um what's been your experience of covid not only from that point of view but also from a from a point of view of you know access to care has has, has been issues that you've heard from other disabled people in terms of how their lives have been impacted in during the pandemic yeah so um I, a lot of disabled people have had the the small amount of care that they did have in the first place 
um, taken away because of the way that things have had to be redeployed locally. Now that is that has left people hugely reliant on unpaid care, on family members, and family members who may have been providing support previously, but are now providing you know twice, thrice, ten times as much in some cases or family members who never had that role in the past, but now have found themselves having to provide it because then people have had their care care removed. We need to we need to get to a situation where, I mean, make no mistake, the, I mean, the, the care system was broken before before COVID, um, but COVID has really, um, has kind of exacerbated that. So we need to get back to a position where, um, well, actually, we need, we, need to, we need to go forward to a position that is even better than it was before COVID. But people who have lost the care during this period absolutely need to be a priority to get it back in place because it's meant some people haven't left the house for years. I spoke to a woman a couple of weeks ago um, who's been stuck in their house um, on the, the fourth story the fourth story of the building for years and recently has not been able to get any support in night to get the care that she needs. Um, that, that can't be acceptable. We can't let that continue. Um, now, we have to put the prominence um, of safety of people, um, including people who use care and who deliver it, um, up front. And we, we, we've seen um, that that hasn't always necessarily borne out. Um, but we, we also need to make sure that people are getting the care care that they need. Um, from, a, from a professional um, point of view, what I saw um, was dedicated NHS staff working day in, day out throughout the whole pandemic um, handling very sensitive information, difficult information, hard to read numbers, hard to read statistics, worrying things. So you're sitting um, as a communications person in that and you're sitting listening in to maybe the First Minister doing doing a statement or you're getting a, a briefing from an incident team and you're not just listening to it from the professional point of view. You think, right, how do I communicate that? Is it press? Is it social, is it social media? Is it letters? Is it email? But you're also absorbing the fact that this is happening to me right now as as a member of staff and I think that as we try and reopen our NHS in the coming months we need to remember that the people we're going to rely on to reopen it are the same people who've been delivering that service throughout the COVID pandemic um, and they're shattered. Absolutely absolutely so uh, you know you you're new to the parliament you've got five years ahead of you Pam at the end of those five years, I mean, this is a big question, given that you've only just started. <laughs> what do you hope that you can you'll have achieved? What will you be able to look back on and say, right, when I when I started, I wanted to do X, Y, Z, and I've I've managed that. Um, well, first first and foremost, I want to represent the people of Glasgow um, well, properly, and ensure that their lives and livelihoods are improved over the next periods, um, um, as soon as possible, but by definitely um, within the next five years. Um, and I also want to make sure that I, I would love to be in a position in five years time to be able to look back and say we have a social security system in Scotland to be proud of because of the work that we did either cross party in agreement or where necessary um, we, we held their, their feet to the fire on some of the commitments that, that they said. So, for example, the First Minister uh, said this week about the, their commitment to minimum income standards and guarantees. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I, I think it is absolutely the thing we need to be doing and I want us to get started on it as soon as possible. And um, the IPPR have set out how we can start to do that. Um, and so I'm hoping that we don't get into a situation where it's we'll trial this or we'll trial that. But in actual fact, we say, OK, these are the steps we can take now. And it starts with doubling the Scottish child payment in this term. Have there been discussions so far, Pam, you know, in, internally in the Labour Party on what you guys are going to prioritise cross-party? 
um, you know, working the SP, there was obviously that um, front page on the Daily Record on the day of the election of Annas and Nicholas's uh, Nicola um, uh, faces merged. Uh, lots of calls for that sort of cross-party working. What, what's the priority from the Labour Party's point of view? Our priority will be um, to, to represent the, the people of Scotland to make sure that um, we that we make a dent in the, the fact that one million people um, in Scotland are living in poverty. We want to make sure that our National Health Service and our, the National Care Service that we've got an opportunity now, I think, to build um, in Scotland is based on human rights, pays workers properly, um, includes things like sectoral and collective bargaining, um, and absolutely delivers for the rights of the people who use it. Um, I think we, we will work with any government um, who, who would do those things and protect the rights of workers and the rights of people who use social care. Any government, um, including, uh, including the Scottish government, who will take action on child poverty and on poverty in the round. Any, we will we'll work with them um, in a social security spokesperson. I would um, more than happily work um, on a minimum income standard and guarantee in Scotland um, and work with the government on that. Um, and where we need to, we'll, we will put the pressure on um, if we if we have to, if we don't think the government is going far enough, um, which is what you'd expect, um, I hope. Um, but that's exactly um, what I think we'd focus on. So poverty, NHS, social care, getting our NHS back on track, building a national care service and delivering social security um, that's human rights based, that's automated where it can be and um, that pays enough. Um, for, for people to live on, that makes sure no one drops below a minimum income standard, that guarantees support for people in precarious and low-paid work as well. Can I ask you um, something that's slightly more controversial, Pam? You remember during the uh, selection process, um, not within Labour, but within the SNP, there was a row over um, over putting people who had disabilities at the top of their, their regional lists and uh, the row was not necessarily about that, but about what was classified as a disability and what was and how whether or not you could identify as having a disability. Because as we know, you know, this idea about identifying as as various things has, has really kind of taken hold. And I just wonder how you you're talking about structural systemic uh, discrimination against disabled people, you know, in Scotland and workplaces and so on and so forth. How how do you view that kind of move towards disability being something that people identify as rather than as very obviously, you know, you you are in a powered motor, you know, wheelchair. Absolutely nobody would say that you identify as being disabled. It's very obvious, you know. I just wonder what your view is on, on that, that, that shift in, in language and how people talk about disability. So defining um, dis disability and whether one considers someone as, as a disabled person or if you think you're a disabled person yourself is is a long, long debate and there's um, and, and has been for, for, for years. Um, where where I think is important is to think about um, I I I consider disabled people to be anyone who has an impairment and whose society isn't equipped for. So um, it's a social model of disability. It's about saying. Um, if societal, um, society oppresses you because um, of negative attitudes and barriers, and that is in, that includes people with unseen and seen impairments, so um, people with mental ill health issues, um, autism, um, learning disability, um, visual impairments, hearing impairments, and people who use wheelchairs, the broad definition of what it means to be a disabled person. And the reason that I think that's important is because what unites us all is society's um, oppression of disabled people on the basis that it's not quite set up to support people like us. 
um, or there are attitudes that, that prevent us from participating um, in society and leading, leading an ordinary life. So it's I always think it's it's really, really important to consider um, disability and disabled people in the broadest sense because um, there are so much more that, that unites disabled people across all of our impairments. That my experience as a wheelchair user will, of course, be different to someone else's experience with a visual impairment. But what we share in common is the fact that society has a negative attitude towards us um, in, in some cases and that we experience discrimination in the workplace, that we experience discrimination in education um, and that reasonable adjustments are not always put in place for us. So it's, it's a really... Um, it's an old, it's a, it is an old debate, and it, and it will go on, I think, for for, for some time. And um, there's also um, something in there about like I, whether or not I wanted to define myself as a disabled person, I do. I, I find it, um, I find it incredibly empowering when I understood that it wasn't something that was wrong with me um, that meant I couldn't do these things, but actually there was a problem with society that wasn't accommodating me, and I find that really empowering. And the way that I came to realise that was because. I'm, I'm mixed with other disabled people who had the same the same experience of oppression and discrimination. They might have had a very different experience of their impairment um, and how it affects them. But what united us was was that, and that's what um, allowed us to have collective action around some of the rights that we fought and won, um, and some and the ones that were yet to to fight and win. So I think it's really important that we take that broader view. And you can, I mean, it's obvious that that I'm a disabled person, but people who have an unseen impairment. Um, don't often talk about it sometimes and that's because of the stigma attached to it so I was at an event last night with um, Elect Her organisation um, which is it looks to um, encourage uh, women from various different backgrounds to get involved in politics and um, the the deputy leader of the Lib Dems, Daisy, was also um, on the call and what she was saying was that she had an unseen impairment and she, she made a choice to not mention that at a certain point in in selection campaign because she didn't want it to be weaponized against her but then um afterwards to say these are the things that i'm going to need to put in place and people make these choices and that's why i think self-definition is so important um but it is also really important um, as and when people feel um, comfortable in doing so to to come out for one of another way of putting it um because actually it's it's quite empowering for people to be able to look and say that's me i have that too and that's okay um, and I've got colleagues in the Labour Party um, and then across the Parliament who are all in that that position. And I'm hoping um, in the next few weeks that we'll be able to set up a really strong group of um, MSPs who all define as disabled people for various reasons, from various parties um, and with various um, different impairments. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Pam. It's been fantastic to chat. Um, maybe in five years we'll see you as the Cabinet Secretary for Social Security under Anasawa after 2026. Who knows? Well, we can hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Pam. Really appreciate That's it. Thanks very much. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.